Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Today, it's great to have Dean Keith Simonton on the podcast. Dean is Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Psychology at the University of California in Davis. His well over 500 single-authored publications focus on topics such as genius, creativity, aesthetics, and leadership. In 2018, MIT Press published his book, The Genius Checklist, but he has also published many other books on these topics, on these various topics of genius and leadership and aesthetics. And... I want to just personally say his book, Greatness, Who Makes History and Why, is one of the major books that inspired me to go into the field that I'm in today. So, Dean, it is just such an honor to chat with you today. Well, it's great. Finally, uh, be able to do this. Thanks, God. Finally. Finally. Uh, <laughs> you know, I remember we were on a, I was on a cruise ship with my dad uh, maybe uh, over a decade ago, and the only thing I wanted to do was sit in the cabin and read your book, Greatness. <laughs> we'll sit, sit in our room, sit in our room. My dad's like, don't you want to like go to the, like the, the shows and the buffets? And I was just captivated by this book. And I still have my copy with all the my underlines and circles. And I think I was still in college at the time. And um, it just, it, I mean, it, I knew that this is what I wanted to do in my life. You know, and you were such an inspiration to me. I wanted to study the science of greatness and, uh, and boy, I, it's just such a—it really is such an honor to chat with you today. I mean, you've done so much for our field. You really have done so much. Well, thank you very much. Um, I, so let's start. Uh, I want to start back 1975. Um, that's when, or even earlier, 1972. You're in Harvard's PhD program in social in social psychology, but and you want to study genius. Now, tell me what your advisors said when you're like, "Oh yeah, hey, I want to study." genius you know what, what was their response a, it wasn't really it wasn't really a legitimate topic um i wanted to study creativity and leadership and first of all they didn't see how they connected and then it didn't help matters that i said well they're both connected because they both are related to genius which made it sort of worse rather than yeah. better <laughs> because it, it's been a long time since um you know genius or greatness or anything like that has been used in psychology 
I think Terman was the last person, you know, back in the 1950s. And it wasn't a good connotation, really. Yeah. Yeah, right. And um, creativity at that time was already uh, kind of seen as a dying field. Mm. You know, essentially, uh, the, the big thing with Guilford and divergent thinking tests and all that kind of stuff kind of maxed out. And um, there, there, I think the fundamental problem for me at that time and why I thought this all fit with social psychology is that um, I wanted to study people who actually exerted a big impact. People were influential. That's why, for me, creativity and leadership were connected because creators, really big creators, you know, what are sometimes called big C creators, are in fact leaders in their field. They're exerting just a different form of leadership, cultural leadership instead of uh, political or military leadership. Mm. So I had a, a really hard time find anybody who wanted to uh, mentor me, but I was very, very lucky that they just hired a brand new PhD, uh, David Kinney. And even though he had no real interest in the substantive side of what I was interested in doing for my thesis, he was very curious about the methodology because I was going to be using econometrics and nobody in psychology uses econometrics, right? And, um, and I was using econometrics because it was the ideal methods for the questions I want to address in my uh, dissertation. And so, uh, and by the way, I should mention, uh, David Kennedy just last year got the Distinguished Scientific Contribution Award after uh, many, many years of effort. So, and he, he got it largely because of his methodological contributions. So um, that really helped because he was willing to supervise me. If you can't find someone to supervise your thesis, you're dead in the water as a doctoral student. That's true. You know. Well, you that approach turned into what you call the the historiometric approach, the historiometric right. approach. Um, at what point did you start to do that? Use the historiometric approach, and can you tell me more? Can you tell our listeners who probably have never heard of it what what that entails? Well, it's kind of interesting because it turns out historiometry has been around for a long time. The term was actually uh, coined in the early part of the 20th century to describe any kind of method where you take historical and biographical data, you quantify it, and then subject it to sophisticated statistical analyses, like multivariate analyses and structural equation models and things like that. And I'm... When I did my dissertation, I hadn't heard of the term. Mm. So I just called what I did uh, archival data analysis. But archival data analysis is too broad. It encompasses a lot of things. And um, not necessarily historiometric. You know, just like going into the archives um, of a library to find out which books are checked out more often. That's not really historiometric, but it's archival. Uh, for, for archival data to be histometric, it has to be data that has actual historical value, uh, like major achievement, major uh, creative masterpieces, artworks, um, major um, battles that were fought, things like that. Uh, things that, well, things that achieve greatness in, in a particular domain. Uh, and so much greatness that they literally go down in history in the annals mm. in terms of major achievements. 
So I learned that uh, this very obscure guy, Frederick Wood, no one knows who he was. He was just a uh, behavior geneticist. Uh, he coined this term. And he pointed out that people had been doing histrometry uh, for a long time, but they never called it that. Like Francis Galton, he considered to be a histrometrician. Uh, and actually, I found uh, somebody who was doing histrometrics in 1835, which makes histrometrics the oldest method used in the behavioral sciences before wow. there were laboratory experiments. <laughs> That's a good like point. That. Yeah, and, but, and yeah. this guy is Ketley, and he's more famous for inventing the BMI index and also introducing the normal distribution, which he described, he said would describe individual differences. Mm. But he also did this classic study, and it's still valid today. I mean, he introduced all these uh, statistical controls and whatever to look at the relationship between age and achievement mm. to see whether or not there was a peak and then a decline. He focused on uh, the, the number one dramatists in the French and English uh, dr dramatic traditions because they're very big and with lots of really outstanding examples like Moliere and Shakespeare. And that's the first study. Now it's published in 1835. And what I think is really amazing is there stu were studies that were published since his that didn't, didn't introduce all the methodological controls that he introduced. So we don't always progress. Sometimes we re regress. Anyway, once I realized that there was a term for it, and I realized that because there, uh, we, I mentioned Lewis Terman earlier, where he did the genetic studies of genius. A lot of times people forget that volume two of genetic uh, studies of genius, which was published by a graduate students of his, Catherine Cox, did not actually look at his intellectually gifted children. She looked at 301 actual geniuses in Western history. These were um, famous generals like Napoleon, famous musicians like Beethoven, famous artists like uh, Michelangelo, and uh, studied not only their intelligence, but also their personality characteristics. And she called what she was doing hysterometry. Oh, wow. So I once didn't I realize realize that. Yeah. And, and, and that was good for me because I was trying to validate what I was doing. And I said, well, this is old stuff. <laughs> you know, it's already been around for now over 100 years. So, Yeah, Cox did some really good work. I think that she should get more credit than Sherman sometimes. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I have a um, paper that just came out in um, the Get Child Quarterly. Where, where I review the entire history of that volume, uh, both the antecedents and also subsequent influences on the field, including its, its, its influences on me. And what's kind of sad about that book in some respects is sometimes Terman gets credit for, yeah. for it because it, it's just a, it's a volume in genetic studies of genius. So he is the author of the entire series, but she is... That's the only volume that he is not co-author on, mm. only her. And sometimes you'll see on the Internet, you'll see uh, someone quote um, IQ estimates for various famous people. You can just go ahead and Google like Mozart IQ and you'll get her IQ estimates. But on some sites are listed as terms oh. and not as hers. 
So, and part of that is that is her higher? Lot, is her is her uh, estimate is her estimate higher than Sherman's estimate? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yeah, Sherman was one of the Raiders. I had to check that. I don't know. I think that's interesting. But what are you saying? Um, yeah. What I think is interesting is that um, uh, one of the reasons why I've been kind of uh, an advocate for her is because I think she is very very neglected, and it was the sophistication of what she did did was. It's often overlooked. She had three independent raters rate the IQ scores, herself, Terman, and then Maude Merrill, who was responsible for a later revision of the Stanford May. So um, these weren't dumb people or just, you know, undergraduates who were told, Here, here's a scoring sheet. What, what always struck me about those ratings is uh, Mozart didn't come out pretty, didn't come out that high <laughs> in, in no. IQ. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he didn't come out as high as um, maybe you might think, but you got to remember that most of the information about Mozart, where he would score high on, has to do with musical uh, precocity. Yeah. And what's interesting is that there was actually a study done of Mozart that was published in Transactions, uh, the Philosophical Transactions, uh, in, in 1770. When Mozart, and this was a study done of Mozart, Mozart and his father Leopold were uh, visiting London on a concert tour. And uh, this guy, the scientist, heard about this incredible child prodigy and decided to give him a bunch, a bunch of tests to see how precocious he actually was. And then what was interesting is, like one was a sight reading thing, how good it was sight reading music. And Mozart, when it came like anything musical, was better than his dad. So in that respect, he had a very high IQ. But when he wasn't sitting at, at a keyboard, he was no different than a typical eight-year-old. Yeah. If, if he was playing at the piano and a favorite kitty walked into the room, he'd immediately drop everything, he'd immediately go and pet the cat. Or he would he'd hop around the apartment on a hobby horse, you know, pretending he was a, a cowryman or something, I don't know. And um, and so in terms of mental development, he wasn't really that precocious, except when it came to music. You see, so that's that was, why I think his IQ ended yeah. up kind of uh, being lowered a little bit. I like that explanation. You know, well, you see that a lot with prodigies. You know. Yeah. Uh, you well, you I mean, do see it. It's uh, like, yeah. Go on. I mean, you have this kind of a, you know, the savant syndrome. Where the disparity is huge, mm. and then you have the prodigies that come somewhere in between, where they're not, um, you know, totally um, slow in their development, but they're still nowhere near their their talent happens right. to be. You know, another famous example of that is uh, William James Sidis, who, you know, when he started Harvard at I think it was thirteen. He delivered a, a presentation in higher level mathematics in front of the math club. It just blew everybody away. But the, when he wasn't talking about math, he walked around like a little kid, like he didn't belong in Harvard Yard, you know. So um, and that was and that ruined him because he, he, he couldn't adjust, you know, to his classes. Everybody looked at him like he didn't belong in the classroom, even though he could he could do the work. But he couldn't interact socially. I think that's so so interesting and just 
there's something so human about that. You know, we're all human. Uh, you know, and, and there's multidimensionality, and also it speaks to the multidimensionality of us. And um, and test scatter, all these things that you don't you don't get captured by a global IQ score. Right. Um, look, you, you know, your career, you've uh, you've done so many different approaches to get at this question about uh, genius, the science of genius, science of greatness. Um, you've published laboratory experiments, mathematical models, computer simulations, meta-analyses, psychometric investigations, secondary data analyses, single case studies, and interviews. You know, what what is it that, that compels you to do a, use a pluralistic approach? Um, what is it within you? You know, like, because not all researchers are, are so interested in, in, in that tri- triangulation. Well, I think the main thing is from the very beginning, uh, as a graduate student, I was trying to find, I would start with a question and then I'd say, what's the best way to answer that question? And, um, most of the time I find that the questions I have that come up in my head, uh, are best answered using hysteriometry. So the majority of my empirical studies are hysteriometric. But there's sometimes where I want to deal with an issue where that does not seem to be the best approach. And, and this is particularly true for my theoretical work, where um, I've done computer simulations and, um, and mathematical modeling. Because what you want to do is, is you, you, set up, you start off with a set of assumptions, and then you want to work out the implications. And then later on, you may collect data to test those predictions. But you've got to first make the derivations from a set of assumptions. And so I've been doing mathematical modeling for um, ages. I started off as a chemistry major, and I took all these math courses and, and things like that. And then when I became a psych major at the end of my junior year, I realized that all that math I took wasn't going to be useful. Uh, when I took stats, even advanced stats, I didn't have to do differential equations or, you know, linear algebra or anything like that. So in a way, it was kind of a waste. But once I started doing mathematical models, all that math that I learned when I was a chemistry major then became very, very useful. So I, in a sense, saved the first two years of college. <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, just going back even further, what were you like, um, you know, in, in middle school, in elementary, in, in elementary school, in high school? Were you in gifted education? Were you a really, really good at math? Um, what did what did teachers say about you? That about your promise? It well, wasn't. Did they say psychology? I was considered, yeah. to, be, I yeah. was considered to be a um, scientifically talented student, hmm. and um, my teachers nominated me for um, a special. When I was in uh, junior high school, they nominated me for a special metropolitan wide. Uh, this, this is in Los Angeles metropolitan-wide uh, program for the scientifically gifted. Um, turned out not to be as fun as I thought it would be. You know, I had to commute all across town uh, and basically just do a bunch of laboratory experiments where you already knew what the result was going to be, you know, like proving the gas law or something, mm-hmm. and which you already knew how it's going to turn out, but they wanted to see whether or not you could replicate it. Wow. You know, so you had you kept lab notes and whatever. Uh, so there's nothing really creative about it. But the main point is both in junior high school and high school, I did receive awards for being top in my class. Not math, though, 
uh, in social science and in the natural sciences, uh, and also English of all things. So I, I was acknowledged that um, uh, I wouldn't consider myself gifted in the way that like um, uh, some of the mathematical gifted uh, people are, you know, and um, like the, the study of the mathematically gifted at, well, at Johns Hopkins and now Johnson. at yeah. Vanderbilt. I mean, yeah. those people, I mean, those guys are, and gals are astonishing. Yeah. And, and of course now some of them are now old enough that we, they become genius adults. Yeah. You know, so, uh, it, it's, uh, those people are off the map. In fact, just to, just to put it in perspective, um, the way I like to put it is I took a, a, um, physics class in high school and, um, I was able to get A's in physics just by doing the problem sets and, and attending the lectures. Okay. So I was pretty proud of myself, but there was another guy in that class who the teacher realized, whoa, you, you just study what you want to study. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, and turn in whatever you want to turn in. And he just gave him an automatic A without doing any of the tests and without doing any of the, the sets. And that guy went on to Caltech. Oh, wow. So, I mean, he was, he, he was with Brett. So that's the difference between being good in science and being, you know, a child prodigy in science. Yeah. The very fact that the physics prop would say, or instructor, you're on your own. Do what well, you want. Do you need to be a child prodigy in order to be that good someday? Like, are you allowed well, to no, be a late bloomer? Yeah. You know, that's that's the thing that a lot of people sometimes forget is um, a lot of child prodigies don't grow up to become genius adults. Uh, they will often go through various struggles, not just because of perhaps um, social issues, but sometimes they have problems actually eventually finding what they want to do. Uh, David Feldman did this interesting study of, of child prodigies, and um, a lot of them were phenomenal, but they didn't stay in the same domain. And they went from one area to another area to another area to another area. Uh, some of them finally found their thing, what were they turned them on, and then developed uh, the necessary expertise. We still have to develop the expertise. Being a child project just enables you to acquire the expertise faster, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, they, not everybody found their thing. Mm. And, then, and a good example of that is uh, William James Sidis. He never really found his thing. The only reason why he went into mathematics is because he was pushed by his um, dad, Boris Sidis, who was a famous uh, psychiatrist, um, but he didn't really want to do it. And as soon as he got a chance, he got out of math. You know, that was dad's, you know, thing. In fact, I remember correctly, he didn't even go to his dad's funeral. He was so peeved. <laughs> wow. Well, but what about the, okay, so what about the reverse? Like, can you not be a child prodigy and be a, become a genius? Yeah, I mean, that happens all the time. I mean, for, for example, um, Beethoven wasn't really a child prodigy. His dad tried to sell him as a child prodigy. He tried to make him into a, a Mozart. Um, 
And in fact, his dad evidently actually lied about Beethoven's age and said that he was two years younger than he actually was, mm. so that he would seem more like a, a, a prodigy. And, and the thing is, he, um, Beethoven never found this out until there was a legal issue. He was, his, he was fighting for um, a custody of, of, of his nephew, and uh, they had to get some records, like his birth records and stuff, uh, back in um, uh, Bonn, that's where, where he was born. And uh, he said, be careful because it can cause confusion because there, I have an older brother who is two years older than me, and he's, he's passed away now, but he's also got the same name. So you got to get the right birth certificate. Well, they finally told him, uh, we hate to tell you, Ludovic, that uh, you didn't have an older brother. So you're <laughs> <laughs> so. So the point is, to get back to your original question, is that um, Beethoven was wasn't really a child prodigy. I mean, he was he was um, competent very early in, um, but not in not anymore. A lot of musicians are um, relatively early when they find their thing. I mean, there's this program on um, public radio called From the Top, where they interview these kids. You know, and they, and they're, some of them are like, you know, 13. I think the youngest I've ever heard is like seven. And, you know, because of the Suzuki method or whatever, they can master a violin at a very young age. But, um, you know, they're not composing yet. Um, they're not yet what we would consider to be adult virtuosity. Um, so you, you do have a certain amount of precocity. Uh, in music, that's fairly common, but child prodigies are relatively rare, even in even in music. And Beethoven was definitely not a child prodigy. That's very interesting. Um, yeah, I just trying to understand, you know, where these things come from. Yeah, I, I know you spent your career trying to study this. I really liked your work, kind of talking about how genes need to sync up sometimes. You know, it's like the late like late bloomers. Um, can can burst on the scene um, when um, when certain genes that take many years, like sometimes you might have genes that code for certain traits that make you appear awkward at a certain age, and then you get to a certain right. age where it all kind of gels together, and then it appears as though someone bursts on the scene. Um, I remember you know adopting some of your work a- along those lines in a um, in an article I wrote for psychology, my first ever article for uh, psychology for the for the public general public. It was Confessions of a Late Bloomer, where I Drew it brought in a lot of your work on that, um, but in addition to genes, you know, like it's 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 obviously like na- it, it's nature via nurture, right? Um, so right. what you know, do you, you know, after studying it for so many years, do you feel like you have a? Do you get it? Do you feel like you get where genius comes from? I don't know about that. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I mean, to me, it's it. A complex interaction between the environment and your genetic, genetic development, and it is rendered more complex for what you said, is that we, we now have appreciated that um, a lot of genes don't fully uh, manifest themselves until you're a lot older. So you may get a pretty good dovetailing at one age, and then that dovetailing doesn't work later on. And sometimes it just may be some capricious event 
One of my favorite examples, we actually did that, that TV show together on late bloomers. And um, one of the examples that I like to give is a Austrian 19th century composer, uh, Anton Bruckner, who um, was a real, real late bloomer. He wasn't a late bloomer in terms of learning music. He always wanted to be a musician. He studied music a lot, but he only wanted to be a religious composer. Um, he composed a lot of um, masses and hymns, and he was very, very religious, very devout Roman Catholic. Uh, he, he played organ in the cathedral and all that kind of stuff, but he wasn't, he didn't stand out. He had, he showed no talent. Hmm. He, he couldn't find his thing. And then one time he went to um, see an opera by Richard Wagner. And all of a sudden he just had this epiphany that he wanted to write symphonies that sounded like Wagner operas, but without singing, you know? <laughs> but the big orchestras and the, and the tubas and all this kind of stuff. And he actually, the first chance he got when he met Wagner, he just grabbed him around his knees and says, Master, I worship you. Wow. And it was really kind of crazy. He, I should say there were a lot of things that were nuts about Bruckner, not just the way he treated Wagner. I mean, he uh, he loved to go to um, funerals because they had this obsession with looking at dead bodies, huh. and and he would only propose to girls who were a lot too young for him, so he never married. Okay, mm-hmm. so he he had a lot of weird things about him, but this fascination with Wagner changed his life. And at, in his, so in his 50s, that's kind of a late start, he starts composing symphonies. And at first it took him a while because, you know, even though he's old, older, more mature, and he's composing for a long time, it took him a while to finally get it together into what is sort of a typical sound of a Bruckerian symphony. Hmm. Um, and later on, he had a big influence on Mahler and, and so forth. But the point is, if there had been no Wagner, there would be no Bruckner. Because I, I would doubt he would, he needed to encounter that sound, that specific sound. And I don't know what it rang in his, you know, his genetic makeup. Because, mm. you know, part of it is just, you know, there's a certain genetic uh, uh, tendency for being able to hear certain sounds or taste certain tastes or you know, smell certain smells or whatever happens to be. Um, you know, I, I, I saw this one interview with this major chef who said she doesn't understand why people put cilantro in anything because she can't even smell it. And she's a chef, you know, but genetically she doesn't have whatever it is necessary for um, smelling that particular herb. So, um, so get back to your original question. There's something happening there where you have this dovetailing and a lot of times it doesn't come together. And so that's one reason why the, the, the amount of potential talent that becomes genius um, is, a, is a very small percentage. You know, the hit rate is very, very low. Um, if, you, if, you, if you think of, let's say, the number of talents each generation that become a Michelangelo or a Newton or whatever is maybe 10%. 
the actual percent is much smaller than that. You know, even if you make it one percent, the actual percentage is smaller than one percent. So um, in fact, Galton even estimated it. I forget what he came out to be, but he estimated what what the shrinkage is basically. Even though he felt that you would, if you had any kind of genius, you would inevitably become famous. But we know that's not true. Well, especially not true in the modern age of technology with YouTube stars and Instagram stars. Um, you know, would you say that they're all geniuses? I mean, they're they're beyond popular. There's there's a difference between popularity popularity. Is there well, is there a difference between popularity and genius? And you know, in this modern age. Well, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, a lot of this technology, well, all of this technology is is so very new that. Um, you know, it's hard to know how it's going to pan out towards the end. Are we going to have um, TikTok geniuses that are going to go down the annals of history or, or not? In fact, I read a very interesting article in um, the New York Times about TikTok artists and how they, they face a real big problem that once they get recognized, so they start getting the following. And of course, you can see how big your following is. Uh, two things can happen to you that undermine you. The first thing, you're under tons of pressure to keep your audience interested. So you got to do another work and another work and another work and not repeat yourself. And it's it's a tremendous amount of pressure to try to do that. And of course, well, the same kind of pressure happened, you know, in, in a time of Beethoven in the time of Michelangelo, you just couldn't repeat yourself, but you were allowed a year or two in between work. But now, I mean, on the internet, you know, the next day people are saying, what do you have for me now? You know, what do you have for me today? The other problem that the TikTok geniuses, artistic geniuses face is that it's, they get imitators very fast. So when, so when you catch on, then somebody says, oh, that's hot. And so they will start their own imitation of you and pull away from your audience, unless you can figure some way of pulling them back. So the net result of this is that TikTok artists have a very short career. It's very hard for them to maintain themselves longer than, I don't know if they've actually calculated the average, but your career may be over by the end of the year, you know? Yeah. And one of the characteristics of genius is that they display a, a lifetime of creativity, a lifetime of productivity. And um, TikTok artists can't do that right now. Uh, there's something about the genre that makes it so it's, it's inherently transient form of, of thing. And um, so I, I think, you know, that's that's going to be the norm. But I don't know. You know, you know this other thing that's happening was it NT. I'll see. There's like three letters. It's an anagram. Where you get some. Um, some chip, some very common little thing. Mm-hmm. And you pay like, you know, $50,000 for it. Because it has some little part of it that says that this is the only copy and you own it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and yet it looks like anything else. Yeah. You can't tell the difference except that one little part of the code. 
that says that you paid for it. Um, so what does that tell you? I mean, this, here, here's something that is deliberately not new. Yeah. And yet you become an artist. I don't think that's going to last very long either. So I don't know. We're, we maybe even a stage where things haven't really um, worked their, themselves through to find out what's enduring. Let's just give you an example of where it has become enduring. Um, I'm not a big gamer. Um, my stepson is a big gamer, so he could, he could say more about this than I, I can. But one of the things that happened when gaming became really big is you started having uh, composers compose music for the games. And now these composers are recognized in their own right as being creative composers, creative musicians. And you can sometimes even hear their music on classical music stations. So that's a case where a genre, which you would think would be pretty transient, but you got to remember a lot of these games, they go through you know, several uh, versions and there's, there's a big demand for them. And the music, just like cinema music, plays a very important role in building up the suspense or, you know, I, know I can't really get more elaborate than that because I'm not a gamer, yeah. but um, it, it, it is a genre that sort of compares to like opera or musical theater or, you know, it's a form of background music or some other form of creativity. You know, I, I think about a hundred years from now, the, uh, the future Dean Keith Simonton in that generation um, is going to have to maybe use a different set of tools or a different set of analyses or a different set of definitions of genius than you have to look at genius in like the 19th century and 20th century. Um, uh, well, yeah, or even like the 18th century. I mean, you, you, you go all the way back. <laughs> you're, right. you know, I mean, that's, that's 17th, 16th century. Um, it, I feel like there's, there's on the horizon a different, a whole different conceptualization of greatness, shall we say. Um, that'll be yeah, interlinked I mean, with technolo technology. Yeah. So sometimes um, you get to the same place um, by different means. I mean, one yeah. of the things I think really impressive right now is big data. And um, so there are these data projects where instead of what I used to do, I say, oh, I'll take everybody who's in a biographical dictionary or an encyclopedia or whatever. That's my criterion. They'll take everybody, you know. There's one study uh, of uh, scientific creativity that basically took everybody who had any kind of scientific career at all. And that includes Nobel laureates, who's all Nobel laureates, but also a lot of people who never made it big. So they can actually do something I couldn't do. Go all the way down, start the, at the very bottom of the distribution and see what people had to do to get their Nobel Prize, you know? And what's interesting though, is they end up with the same conclusion that I had hmm. using different sources. They found that the number one predictor of when you came up with your, let's say your Nobel Prize winning research is the total amount of publications you produced. Hmm. So the more prolific you were, the higher the probability. Is that the and, equal odds um, rule? Is that the equal it, odds? It's, it's, I, I, I call it, I call it the equal odds. Yeah. Equal yeah. odds rule. Yeah. They call it the um, random impact rule. I like but it's the same rule. 
It's the same rule. And in fact, they later on acknowledged it. Um, they, they signed a paper that I published in Psych Review, and they had overlooked that. And I, I told them, go back to that paper. I'll talk about the equal odds rule there, and that's your random impact rule. Um, I don't want, it's not a priority dispute or anything, but the point is, is that using an entirely different method, namely big data, which is not histometric, it's actually archival. You're taking basically, you know, the web of science or Google or whatever, and using that to supply your data. And, um, and, it's, and that data is not collected for historical reasons, it's collected for scholarship. You know, to find out who's doing work on what, and who cites whom, and all that kind of stuff. So, um, but at the same time, they end up with the same conclusion that I end up. So they end up uh, replicating. Well, they also came up with some other conclusions that I didn't come up with, because they can do much more, you know, fine detail analysis, given there are huge ends. I mean, they have ends that just boggle the mind. Yeah. Um, I, I just want to explain to our audience who who might be a little bit lost right now <laughs> about what the, what this rule actually means in in everyday parlance. Um, the way I say it, and I give talks at times, I say, "Here's the secret to creative genius." Are you ready? Get out your pen. Create, 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 create. And right. basically, the point there, you know, is that. Um, the more that you keep um, producing, you know, trial and errors, whether if it's scientific creativity, uh, you know, trial and error, you know, or artistic creativity, ex keep expressing yourself over and over in many different ways, um, the higher the probability that someday one of them will be a masterpiece. Is that the colloquial fair way of describing it? Yeah, but you got to remember, it's not like you're deliberately trying to produce trash. You That's know, nobody's true. trying to produce trash. It's just That's that. True. Any given um, you know, work of art or work of science is a very, very complex thing, very complex product, and a lot of different things have to come together. And sometimes it just, just doesn't quite work. You know, so a Beethoven's Fourth Symphony is a very nice symphony, but it's not played anywhere near as often as its third or its fifth, because it just doesn't quite come together as a masterpiece mm. you know you play it orchestras play it largely because audiences are tired of hearing a third and a fifth <laughs> right so they want to hear something in between you know yeah. but um here's an interesting study that was done i actually cite this in my origins of genius which i think is just fascinating uh this guy um wanted to study to find out what would a, what is the factor that enables someone to be, become really creative in ceramics? So he had two conditions, two independent conditions, you know, random assignment to two groups, all that kind of stuff. In one group, the, the, his students were told, okay, you have all uh, term or quarter or whatever it was to produce a single masterpiece, a single ceramic. And um, so go to it. And so people will start working away. And a lot of times they just think a lot of times, well, I got to come up with some idea first before I go to the, the potter wheel or whatever. In the other condition, he said, your grades can be based on the total weight 
of the ceramics you produce. And then at the end of the term, uh, he did something that he didn't tell him about in the second group. He took the, he had raiders pick out the best stuff of the big pile of ceramics mm. that was produced in the wine class. And they didn't know what condition it was in. And the raiders rated the things from the productivity group as more creative than the ones who were supposed to be perfectionists. Mm. You know, just focused on one single um, masterpiece. Oh, that's interesting. So uh, there's an example of the equal odds rule working for you. Well, that's interesting. You know, how, how to reconcile that with, um, you know, the popularity of the concept of grit. You know, like one of the facets of grit is consistency of interest. That's on Angela Duckworth's right. grit scale. It seems like a lot of creators have a diversity of experiences. But, you know, before you answer this question, I think that all, because I, I know what you're going to say, because it's just <laughs> so, whole, I, I, I know, I know. Uh, but um, there's a, I feel like there's a more general pattern with all of this stuff is that there's just, when you talk about creativity, there's paradoxes inherent you know, there's, you know, there's always like, well, this is true, but then the seemingly opposite is also true, you know? Right. So um, now I'll let you give your answer, but I feel like that's, you know, just like there's an overall pattern here with all these kinds of questions well, with yeah, creativity. I mean, as you know, one of the chapters in my genius checklist has to do with this paradox. I know. Okay? That's because why I know. The research, yeah. Research. You wrote, a, you wrote a great, great blurb for that, by the way. One of my favorite <laughs> blurbs in history. Yeah. Anyway, um, one of the paradoxes is that one of the number one predictors of creative genius, and by the way, it's also a predictor of leadership as well, like in, in presidential leaders, is openness to experience. Yeah. Having a lot of interests, a lot of hobbies, willing to try out new ideas, and and being well versed in. Uh, Areas far removed from your actual domain. Um, I mean, a good example of that is the work that the Ruth Bernsteins have done on um, Nobel laureates and found that the, that the higher you are in the hierarchy of scientific achievement, the more likely you are of having artistic hobbies. Yeah. You know, maybe you're a painter or a photographer or whatever. Yeah. And that's obviously going to be irrelevant to, you know, working out the equations for some theory and, and quantum theory. Um, but on the other hand, you do have to have this persistence, you know, this drive. So, you know, you look at how long, you know, Einstein worked on relativity theory and, and the unified field theory. It takes a tremendous amount of, of persistence and stick to this. But it also knows you have to know when to quit because you can, you know, you can become a drudge and be very, very persistent and you've done yourself into a hole. And you've got to get out of that hole to be able to find out if there's an alternative way. And, you know, there's all sorts of research on this, you know, what the role of incubation, you know, and yes. creative problem solving, things like that. And so it's, it's both. You know, there was a time when Einstein would be working away on his equation and he'd finally reached a dead end. And he says, it's time for me to go sailing. Or it's time for me to play Mozart sonatas on the violin. Yeah. You know, and it's not that they gave them any ideas, but they, they, although they might have, I mean, who knows when he's on the sailboat, uh, if there was some kind of stimulus in environment or something he overheard conversation in the boathouse, I don't know, that could have, you know, provided a seed 
for an idea. So, and can I just say one thing about the, the grit research um, that's often overlooked? Um, most of the um, domains in which that is applied focus on areas that are very well defined, and there's there's a, a pretty established path to how you get to where you want to go. You know, I mean, I mean, a good example of that is you know a military academy. Uh, that's that's the thing where everything has been well over a century. It's been set up. This is what you need to do if you want to get through the military academy, right? Yeah. Um, uh, spelling bees is another one that they've used uh, in grit studies. Well, that's another example. You know, uh, here's a dictionary. Memorize it. <laughs> you know. Right. So, um, yeah. I don't think they've actually done anything looking at grit with respect to um, creative geniuses. Do you know of anything? Um, so only uh, the research that Angela Duckworth and I collected that we never published because we were interested in this question. Um, and oh, really? we did, yes. And we found um, that the, uh, the, the two facets of grit um, had completely opposite predictions. So perseverance was very strongly positively correlated with our creative achievement questionnaire. Um, however, the consistency of interest facet was strongly negatively correlated. Oh, with that's the interesting. Yeah, we should probably publish that someday. But yeah, this is this is the uh, the CAQ the CAQ. Yep, 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 yep. Yeah, Carson Peterson. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, but you got to publish that because it's kind of it's interesting how that bifurcates like that. You know? I think we should. I'm going to reach out to Angela again. That's yeah. like, I mean, that's like, you know, I'm sure you have lots of data just like sitting on your computer that it's like, you just, you're like, someday I'll get around to it, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. in fact, I have, and, and I have, a, I have a graduate student that has a lot of data like that too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Every time I see her, hey, you know, we're going to co-author that. <laughs> well, that's well, that's that's interesting. You bring that up because ninety-three percent of your publications are single-authored. So right. um, that would be a huge outlier if you did publish that with your with her. <laughs> but uh, every once in a while, I do collaborate. I mean, at the beginning, um, I couldn't find anybody who wanted to do historiography, mm. right? and um, and then once I started having graduate students. Uh, some of them would do histometric dissertations, but most of them end up doing dissertation at a topics. Or they get their dissertation in histometry, they would then get a postdoc and pursue in entirely different directions. Some of my, in fact, my two best graduate students, uh, that's what they did. They got postdocs. So even though they did their dissertations using histometry, their their current research programs don't use histometry. Okay. Mm -hmm. And like this example I gave earlier, where I'm saying we got some really good histometric data you, you collected, we, we got to publish this. But she's doing something else now. It's almost like you know forcing her to regress to uh, when she was a graduate student. So it's hard to get people to want to do what I do. So yeah. a lot of the collaborations I end up working on is where someone says a good example of this. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this study. But back in uh, 1985, I published a uh, uh, article in Psychological Review, which was a theory of the relationship between intelligence and influence in groups. And I show that under a certain set of, uh, of circumstances, having to do with uh, the relationship between intelligence and problem solving and the relationship between intelligence and 
uh, communication style, that um, there was a correlated relationship, inverted view relationship between intelligence and your influence in the group. And, I, and I actually made a very precise prediction. It predicted that um, the optimal IQ would be uh, 1.2 standard deviations above the mean IQ for the group. Huh. We don't have too many point predictions in, in no. uh, psychological theory. It's pretty specific. <laughs> in any case, um, I had a guy at the University of Lausanne in, in uh, Switzerland who said, um, I collected some very interesting data that finds this curvilinear relationship, and I was trying to find if there's any prior research on this topic. And uh, I came across this paper that you published way back in, in 1985. And it looks like my data supports your theory. Oh, and um, he says, do you want to become a co-author on this? And because uh, he wanted somebody to, want somebody to be responsible for the theory part in the introduction. And uh, it's, a, it's an amazing study. It looks at middle managers in a lot of businesses okay. and uh, uses um, a standard uh, intelligence test, the same one that's used for football players. And um, 1.2 standard deviations. And we oh. have all these robustness tests and significance tests to prove that the slope becomes negative right after 1.2. Uh, the confidence interval is, is beautiful. Um, and so when he's, when he asked me to collaborate on that, and this ended up being published as the lead article in the Journal of Applied Psychology. Um, so it's one of my best papers. I mean, I'm third author on it. Okay. Because I didn't collect the data and I didn't do the analysis. I just provided the theory kind of retrospectively, you know? Yeah. So that's an example where I'm, I'm, basically collaborating simply because I'm on somebody's study. I'm riding their gotcha. horse. Yeah, no, I got you. You're just, you're very unusual in the field in, in, in how many, well, first of all, how many publications you have period, but then how many are single authored. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's remarkable. Um, I mean, I, I've just, I've had conversations with, uh, James Kaufman, a, uh, I, I know you know him, but, uh, uh, for our listeners, a very prominent creativity researcher, and we 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 are so puzzled how you even like like how do you know the math? Like how does it just come intuitively to you? Like we look at some of your papers and we don't know what the hell your the formulas mean. Like how do you even know what those formulas mean? <laughs> like where does it come from? Where does it come from with you? <laughs> well, I, well, I told you I I took math yeah. when I was a chemistry major. Yeah. So I had the first two years of college math. I've had, you know, your normal calculus, which takes you through your first year, and then uh, vector geometry, linear algebra, and differential equations. Um, and of course, I also have had advanced statistics as well. So that gave me a kind of a head start on it. Uh, I've always been good at math. I, I wouldn't say I was a, a talented math. But I was someone who'd always get A's as long as I did the problem sets, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I attend a lecture, do the problem set, and get an A on the exam, you know. Um, so I had a certain ability for the mathematics. Uh, 
sometimes sometimes I'm able to, um, and this is something unique to histor historiometry that I have to mention. One thing that's unique about historiometry is that the subjects are historical figures. So you can use your subjects over again. The same people. Hmm. Uh, if somebody does a historiometric study before you, uh, we got the, back to Catherine Cox as an illustration. Catherine Cox published IQ scores for 301 geniuses. Whoa, this is great. She did some analyses, but not very extensively. She was focused on actual estimates and whatever. She, she calculated a, a correlation between uh, IQ and eminence and found that it was positive, significant, but no detailed analyses. And so when I realized, wait a minute, she's got this data um, about these people. We already know who they are. I can get bi further biographical information. So one year after my uh, dissertation was published, in 1976, I published a reanalysis of her data where I took her IQ scores and then added more data of my own. I looked at uh, formal education. I looked at socioeconomic class. I looked at their versatility and, um, and then uh, built a, a structural model based on that. But think about it. I didn't, I, it cost me nothing to use her IQ scores. Right. That, that was a freebie. And all the data was already available. And I've done yes, a number right. of histometric studies where I've taken one histometric study and then I've added more variables to it so that it's sort of like a replication and extend thing. But you, but you don't have to collect the data all over again. Well, what did you, you find? Yeah. Huh? Well, what did, tell me more about what you found with your reanalysis of Cox's data. Tell me like the nuances. Ah, uh, the nuances. Um, uh, first of all, um, actually, I published a couple studies using her data. Uh, most recently in Psychological Science in 2009. A lot of interesting things there. Um, oh, and I should add, and this gets back to historiometry again. Um, a graduate student of mine found that she, that she had um, started a, a data analysis that she never completed. And she left the data uh, in the archives in Akron University, and she found these data where she rated her geniuses on um, physical and mental health. Hmm. And this data had never been used before. Wow. So I combined that data. Again, it's the same people, same subjects. Combine that data with her data and the data I collected to do some additional analyses. And there's a lot of findings, but one of the things that's very interesting, I think, is that, you know, there's this thing about, uh, you know, the mad genius controversy. And um, we know that um, artistic geniuses have higher proclivities towards uh, mental illness. And in fact, um, one study that was done by Arnold Ludwig showed that poets were way up there in mental illness. There were 80, 85% of poets had some kind of uh, they may not necessarily be clinical, although it often is. If you commit suicide, that's considered to be clinical mental illness, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, um, but what's interesting is that what Cox had done is estimated the childhood evidence for a mental illness. And I should say she had an interest in this because she was actually a child psychologist. So that's what she became later. 
and did clinical work with, with young kids. And, um, and, and I was able to show that already in childhood and adolescence, poets start showing um, inferior mental health comparison to other future geniuses. So it's, it's, it's an early onset phenomenon. Uh, you know, often depression and, you know, feeling uh, odd and weird and that kind of thing. Uh, another thing I showed is that there's a, um, dramatic differences in um, intelligence across different groups. So, like philosophers tend to be the highest in IQ. When you think about the professional thinkers, it kind of makes sense. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the, the group with the lowest IQ are uh, the military leaders. I mean, with Napoleon, Napoleon didn't come out very bright. You know, he would he would have made Mensa. But he's, he doesn't stand in the same rank. I mean, think about it, he's the greatest military leader in modern times, but he doesn't come close to Mozart, Beethoven, or whatever. Um, but that kind of makes sense because if you're a military leader, you're, you're in fact, actually gets back to the mathematical model. Military leaders lead groups that have either average intelligence or below average intelligence. IQ. <laughs> so, yeah. I don't. And, right. and, I mean, there's plenty of data on that. Yeah, yeah. And and so that means that if you want to be an effective leader for that kind of population, you can't talk over their heads. Uh, if, if you're going to expect yeah. them to charge you up that hill and sacrifice their life, you know, with a cannonball, you be better be very understandable in your, you know, rah 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 speech. Yes, but wouldn't so, like um, some. So wouldn't like a multiple intelligence person say like, well, they certainly have leadership intelligence. <laughs> yeah, but that was part of it. That was part of it because one of the things that a lot of people overlook is that with Catherine Cox and um, and Maud Merrill and um, Terman, and I kind of met, touched upon this earlier, estimated IQ scores, most of their development, developmental information uh, I mean, they're supposedly measuring intellectual development, but they're not like measuring digit span, you know, kind of thing. They're measuring intellectual development that's pretty much domain specific. So what that means is that when they were estimating the IQ of a leader, they were looking at example, early examples of uh, demonstration of leadership ability. So, for example, you do see in Napoleon very early, him assuming leadership roles, even when he was just a corporal. And um, so that was part of the IQ um, estimate. My favorite illustration of that is um, if you compare uh, Pascal with Mozart, not a single part of of Pascal's IQ score was based on musical ability because he had none. Not a single part of Mozart's IQ score was based on mathematical ability because he had none. Yet he got a high, very high IQ score, and she, he got she got a, he got a very high IQ score because they were primarily rated on things that were either musical or mathematical. Mozart, you said Mozart. Yeah, Mozart. So I like thought Mozart, I thought his estimated IQ was like a hundred, though. Oh no! Oh no! No! I thought he was, so. No, he, I am. He's higher than that. 
He, he his IQ was, well, first of all, there's, there's four different IQ scores that they estimated, okay, uh, up to age 16, and then 16 to, to 26, and then uh, corrected for data reliability, and then not, and then raw, not correct for data reliability. Uh, he was roughly around 150. Really? Yeah. I... Beethoven was around 130. No, he was not. Oh, no. That's an insult. Mozart was born the same guy I, I was, so you can't rag on Mozart. Okay. <laughs> you know, Beethoven was my favorite. I'm certainly not ragging. I I thought that when I had looked, at, there were so, I thought there were some surprises. I remember when I looked at that data, there were some geniuses who had very average IQs. Um, and maybe there maybe were, I'm, uh, it wasn't few, Mozart, there, but um, yeah. La Fontaine, hmm. uh, the uh, French fabulist, uh, had an IQ that was just barely above average. I think it was 105. There were some like around that. there. I remember and, it struck me. Yeah. Okay, you stay there. Okay, I will. <laughs> I will. I I'm I'm curious about the Mozart one because I'm pretty sure it was like not that high. Okay, this is this is my Bible. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love. I'm looking at Dean Keith Simonton's uh, version of of that of the Cox studies. <laughs> yeah, this is and this is actually the 1969 printing. So um, I got it. It, it, it came out um, when I was still a graduate student. Actually, it came out my senior year of high school. And you can see it's, 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 it's really in bad shape, terrible shape. But um, let me look up Mozart. Okay, just so I can tell you. Um, oh, actually, what's interesting about her book, she has a whole section where she groups them according to their um, rating. So that makes it a little bit easier. Um, okay, we have IQ, lowest she goes is, um, there's lots of IQs of 120 and above. And that's kind of interesting because that's often used as a criterion for intellectual yeah. giftedness. Yeah. The lowest cases are there's some 110, and um, oh man, she just she has some from 100 to 110. Okay, and uh, and I, I said La Fontaine, uh, his IQ was estimated between 100 and 125. Okay, 125 is the later one, you know, in adolescence. Um, but there's some pretty famous people with relatively, well, Cervantes, uh, 105 to 110. There you um, go. And a lot of that is because um, most of his early life doesn't exist. Yeah. You know, we have no record. Very much like Shakespeare. Who, who a lot of unreliability. Yeah, yeah, a lot of unreliability. Oh, a lot of unreliability there. But I was going to say, Shakespeare, that's a whole other can of worms with you. Uh, you know, who was the real <laughs> Shakespeare? <laughs> Shakespeare didn't make the sample because the data so it was so bad. I know. and yeah, But you didn't, you didn't find Mozart, though. You didn't find your, your cheating. You, oh, uh... <laughs> you want Mozart. Sorry about that. Yeah. Um, okay, let's find Mozart. Um, while, you're, while you're looking, can you, can you, can you talk and chew gum at the same time? Can you can you tell us about who was the real who was the real bard? Who was the real in your analyses? 
Did you ever figure it out? Well, I'll get to that in a second. Okay, I'm almost, almost, almost there. Um. Okay, Mozart. Um. Okay. 150. Really? For his childhood, and 155 for when he was adolescent. But there's such there was such um, a paucity of data on his intellectual prowess. Um, no, was... we, I told you we have we have um, well we actually have a scientific observation of him when he was eight years old. Really, what you, you know, were describing earlier? Trans yeah. Transactions of philosophical society. Hmm. So he, he was pretty well documented, and part of it was because um, Leopold, his father was really, really dedicated to documenting how precocious wow. his, his uh, young son was. I mean, he had a, a daughter, Anneral, an older sister, who was also very precocious, but he realized Mozart was in another league altogether. Uh, very interesting. But let me answer your question. Okay, please okay. do. I haven't really found an answer to this, this Shakespeare authorship problem. But what I have done is I've done a data analysis as a, a content analysis of his plays, uh, basically a stylometric analysis, and comparing that with, uh, and, and also content analysis of the thematic material to see what he talked about and how that relates to events that occurred externally, uh, focusing on political events. And what I showed is that the current dating that's traditionally given for the plays is probably correct. Huh. The high probability of being correct. So what that tells you is that whoever composed, whoever wrote the plays was pretty much an exact contemporary of Shakespeare's. Mm. And that does rule out a lot of people. It sure for example, does. Rules out the current um, most popular candidate is um, the Earl of Oxford, who a lot of people believe um, composed the plays. But the problem is, is that he died before a lot of the plays were yet to be written. Hmm. So that kind of puts a kind of a monkey wrench in that uh, attribution. But there's still other candidates. Um, I just got an email a, a couple of days ago from. We still have people who argue for Francis Bacon, for example. No, stop it, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. And because he was an exact contemporary of, of Shakespeare. So time-wise, he could have. I don't believe it. I don't but, believe it uh, either. I don't buy it. My, my favorite candidate right now um, is Henry Neville. And he fits really, really well. That's interesting. Good. Yeah. Huh? I said, that's he, interesting. He, 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 certain things that happened in his personal life fit things that happen in the plays. So that, for example, there's a spot in the plays where they start becoming very, very dark and, and, and you know, depressing and negative in the tragedies. Yeah. When you look at the timing, like Hamlet, for example, uh, he was tossed into the Tower of London under threat of having his head chopped off for his involvement and the Earl of Sussex rebellion against Elizabeth I. And he was very lucky to get out alive. 
Uh, and so he started putting his affairs in order and, um, and he never completely recovered that. I mean, he didn't have his head chopped off, but he lost a lot of his privileges. He wouldn't, he was no, no longer able to be, uh, he used to be able to be the, the, um, the carrier of a canopy when she would go on <laughs> public things like that. So um, anyway, that's my answer. Is we don't, I, I actually don't think we'll ever have a complete answer. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just there, there's so much information. It's like another example. I did a study, which I know you're from. So you've actually cited in one of your blogs of Beethoven symphonies and showed how the even-numbered symphonies are very, very different from the odd-numbered symphonies. That's right, yeah. They're not any more popular, more frequently performed, and all that kind of stuff. But the melodies, and this is but determined by a computerized content analysis, the melodies are different oh. in the, in the odd-numbered symphonies than the even-numbered symphonies. Wow. So um, the question is, is that, did he know that? And um, we'll never know that. We've never found any letter where it says, well, I just finished uh, odd-numbered symphony, so it's time for me to work on an even-numbered symphony. What could be all the possible explanations of that? I mean, it, the whole full space of possible explanations, there, there could be things we haven't even thought of, you know? that. Um, I mean, I mean we, to me, the most yeah. likely one, most likely explanation is Beethoven's um, odd-numbered symphonies were breakthrough symphonies. Where he went well beyond where he where he was before, and I think he had to step back uh, after he did after after he did his well he had his first symphony that was his first symphony uh, total, yeah. and then his second symphony is is regressive. It's actually more conservative than his, yeah. his first symphony. Then he does his third symphony, the Eroica symphony. And he really, I mean, it was, it was long and, and had a lot of um, innovations in it. Uh, and so he backs up into his fourth symphony, which is more conservative. Then he has his fifth symphony, and then he backs into his sixth symphony, which is more conservative. And then he goes to the seventh symphony, which is another bold statement. And of course, he finally ends on the ninth. Hmm. So, I mean, it's interesting to me, for example, that after he did the seventh symphony, he composed the eighth symphony, and it's full of jokes and a sense of humor. Yeah. And it's, it's also almost as short as the shortest symphony, the second symphony. Interesting. So I think he needed kind of um, a break. And you see that for in the thematic material, for example, that, um, that the thematic material is much um, less varied in melodic originality. And um, there's differences in the level of melodic originality. I mean, it's it, he's just... He's, uh, with Freshen, he's just, he was unbuttoned when he did his uh, even-numbered symphonies. Whereas that kind of image you have of Beethoven, of, you know, uh, fate knocking at the door and fighting against fate, that's what he did his odd-numbered symphonies. I see. Well, okay. Well, this was this is this is great elucidation right, elucidation right here. I think that's probably the most parsimonious. Yeah, but we don't know. I know. We'll and know. We never know, but it's fun. It's fun talking prob- probabilities <laughs> of what probably happened. Um, I'd like to double click on the madness uh, genius link for a second because you've done so much really cool work on that. In your book, um, Genius 101, you, 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 you point out a paradox. You say, here's some advice. Go stark raving mad, but also become the poster child for sanity. 
Now, right. now, but what is that about that paradox? Well, um, first of all, one of the things that I emphasize um, in that book, Genius Checklist, is that um, there's not one kind of genius, mm -hmm. one size fits all uh, genius. And in a particular, a theme going throughout the book is the, the, the stark difference between scientific genius and artistic genius. And, and I have to say, there's, there's divisions within each. So like, if you look at artistic geniuses in a generic sense, the class composers are more like scientists, and then the poets are more like prototypical. Um, and so, and actually, yeah. um, uh, Arne Ludwig has an interesting um, hypothesis on this. He says, and he collects data to show this, that the more logical and systematic and formal is the particular kind of creativity you're doing, the more likely you're going to be mentally healthy. Hmm. Because uh, mental illness is going to get in the way. But the more adjective, the, the more informal, the more chaotic uh, the particular form of creativity is, the higher the rate of some kind of, not necessarily mental illness, it could be subclinical symptoms, right, of depression or, or whatever. And, um, and that's borne out in not only his own research, but in my own research. Um, scientists are less likely to show uh, mental illness than our artists. But then there's divisions within the scientists. So there's a nice, study that, that um, was done by, uh, uh oh, Ko and Kim, or Kim and Ko, one, of the, one way or the other, two <laughs> Korean um, researchers, where um, they look at revolutionary scientists versus what they call paradigm-conserving scientists. They didn't challenge the paradigms they received, they just um, extended them, you know. And they found that the revolutionary showed much higher rates of mental illness than did the paradigm-conserving scientists. And that gets back to the explanation of Arnold Ludwig. When, you're, when you are shattering the paradigm, then you're really in a very vulnerable position. You know, it's like all hell breaks loose. And you're under lots of stress because you don't know if you can be able to pull this off. Uh, even if you're able to pull it off, you don't know if your ideas are going to be accepted. I have the poor Einstein, you know, he comes up with a beautiful theory of relativity. And instead of being praised for it, that held him back from getting the Nobel Prize. Because the mm -hmm. people on, particularly one guy in particular, says, that there's nuts, that there's crazy. And so he had to wait uh, to get his Nobel Prize because his theory went, well, it challenged the classical physics. Yeah. You know, and this person was a classical physicist. And then same thing with an artist, you know, classical musicians deal with a highly formal area with a lot of emphasis on order and structure. Uh, there's rules of harmony, rules of counterpoint, uh, where in the case of poets, it's like anything goes. I mean, particularly now, where, you know, there's no rhyme or reason for poetry. You know, it's whatever you feel like doing, as long as it, is, it successfully expresses what you want to express, and it's often emotion that you want to express. Um, 
So um, it's interesting, you know, um, you, you mentioned um, James Kaufman earlier. You know, he's done an interesting study on, on those poets that um, are most likely to have mental illness issues and often commit suicide, like Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton, for example, are confessional poets where you're spending a lot of time dwelling on horrific experiences or feelings you have and that rumination, you know, pessimistic rumination um, is not good for your mental health. Mm. Uh, and it's not therapeutic because, you know, there's, there's talk therapies where it's therapeutic to talk about these things, but you're supposed to work it through until you get to the end and see that there's another way of looking at all this, yeah. a more healthy way of looking at all this. And the confessional poets didn't do that. They just dwell on it, you know, my daddy this and my daddy that. I can't take it anymore. You know, it's, it's, it's time to, you know, turn on the stove. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so the, the point is, and that the paradox is, is that, oh, and here's one other aspect of that. And I actually have a whole paper I study uh, published on this. Um, I call it the mad genius paradox, where I show that it's actually technically possible for creativity to be positively um, correlated with mental health at the lower end, but negatively correlated with mental health at the upper end of the distribution. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the reason for that is because the vast majority of creative people we're at the bottom end of the distribution. It's not a normal distribution. Yeah, that's for and sure. the people at the top are a, a teeny, teeny percentage. So as a consequence, if you just kind of calculate, um, let's say, here's some creative people, here's some non-creative people, who's the most mentally healthy? You'd find out that the creative people are more mentally healthy. But if you calculate the correlation between the impact, the creative achievement, you find a positive correlation with mental illness. So anyway, you get to make a long story short. Yeah. Um, well, I can't really do that anymore. I've already talked too much. Um, it's you have to be very, very careful because it's a very, very complex relationship. And and I have to, and the one thing that obviously, if you go over the edge, you know, like Hemingway or Anne Sexton or you know Sylvia Plath, your creativity is not helped at all. Yeah. You know. Um, now, well, the, and once he once he get was committed to the mental institution, that was the end of his creative career. Sure, and uh, obviously, once he commits, <laughs> commits suicide, um, I mean, I guess in some cases, like Kirk Cobain, your your work can actually be even uh, immortalized in, of all time. You know, the the twenty seven year old club, they I think a lot of them killed themselves so that they would forever be, you know, uh, a myth. Right. Well, I mean, the, the youngest, interesting, in the Cox study, the youngest person who made it into it was 18 years old. Hmm. That's Thomas Chatterton. And uh, he made a name of, uh, for himself uh, with the, what are called the Rowley poems. They were all forgeries. He said he found some middle medieval poetry. And... Um, he made up a kind of a, you know, a, a medieval 
vocabulary and, and dialect and, and, and so forth hmm. and totally faked it and fooled people for a long time. But unfortunately, um, when it started coming out, people started being suspicious because he would never show the actual manuscripts, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when it, people started getting suspicious, he decided to, um, there was also a unrequited love part of it story too. He, uh, you know, took an overdose of arsenic. Hmm. I guess any dose of arsenic is an overdose, but, uh, so, but it's amazing at 18, he was able to, yeah, out of 301 geniuses, he's, he's in there, you know, Good for but him. he's probably in there because he committed suicide, like your example. Well, yeah, that that's right. That's right. So, I mean, sometimes making that decision is what puts you in the history books. But I don't want to say that in a way that advocates for that choice. Oh, no, 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 yeah. no, 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 please don't. Obviously, obviously, I want to be clear. Um, but, you know, I look at the uh, Frank Barron studies. Um, he found that they did score um, above average in uh, markers of mental illness, but they also scored pretty high on markers of mental health. And that's the paradox I wanted to really zoom in here a second, because uh, they also... Uh, uh, ego strength. Ego resiliency. Ego strength. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And also, even on the um, the clinical symptoms, this is on the MMPI, on the clinical symptoms, um, even though they were um, above average, they were still below the normal level you see for people who are actually um, right. clinically disabled by their mental illness. So right. they were right in between. It was like uh, Dryden saying that there was a, 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 a thin border between madness and um well, he used wit, you know, madness and wit. Um, and so that um, lower level in combination with um, ego strength uh, or in the Cattell 16 factor, it was uh, self-sufficiency, the same kind of thing. Would, 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 that be, it, yeah. huh? would, would that be grit in today's world? Yeah, I don't know, you know. <laughs> uh, that's a, one thing that's really kind of unfortunate about um, I think the main frustration for me when I start studying personality theory and measurement is that you get these new tests and they don't completely map on each other. I know. So, so some perfectly good dimension of like the 16 factor uh, personality scale or MMPI ends up vanishing. Because it, it doesn't map out onto the five-factor model, you know. Of course, then later on, people start adding more factors to the five-factor model. And then eventually, I guess you'll get back to, to tell 16 factors or whatever. But a lot of dimensions kind of disappear. Uh, and, and, and sometimes, of course, the dimensions that replace them are, are composites of, of Things that used to be separate dimensions, yeah. you know, like extroversion and the Big Five. That's partly social dominance, and partly liking to be with people, and those are not really the same thing. Um, which which trait? Uh, extroversion. Oh, extroversion. Yeah, no, that's oh, a really good five. point. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a positive two major dimensions. It's and got sometimes. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, go sometimes what? Well, sometimes they split. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. There's actually gender so, differences uh, in 
there's gender differences, but we don't we don't have to go there in the two facets, and, yeah, the two aspects. Uh, like uh, the stuff I've done on um, presidential leadership is kind of interesting. For example, that the president who had the lowest score on openness um, is uh, um, Bush, the second Bush. Very, it wasn't. He was ne- he never. People used to complain like a candidate who was never curious. He never would ask a question. You know, oh, he reminds wow. me of something that happened to me the other day. He never did it. Um, but he, there's one facet of Opus experience that he scored very highly on, and that is um, re- receptivity to um, openness to emotion. So he's very, uh, very open to um, emotions, but he wasn't open to values, wasn't open to interests, etc. Uh, exactly how many facets there are. So again, it can sometimes split. Um, Rousseau was very open. He was one of the most open people ever in history, uh, except for values. He he knew what his values were, and he were not. He was not going to change them. Okay. <laughs> well, I got to ask you because you you've you've spent a career studying uh, leadership. Um, where would you? What, what's your take on President Trump? Oh God! Don't ask. Me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're you're in a unique position to yeah, comment you know, on. First of all, can I say something? I I I get a lot of mail. Some of it is uh, trolling. Um, asking for me to give Trump's IQ, okay? Because he boasted about his IQ. I know. Well, you can estimate it. <laughs> uh, but I haven't estimated anybody since the second Bush. Okay. Okay. And part of the reason was because I got so much flack. I still get flack for that study because people think it's highly partisan. Hmm. Uh, and particularly because um, Bush ended up having a relatively low IQ estimate in comparison to his predecessor, Clinton. Um, but if I actually show in the study that there's no partisan bias. That if you look across all presidents, there's no difference in IQ scores. Huh. Obviously, there's going to be difference for particular presidents. I mean, Carter was really up there in IQ. Um, but there's no partisan bias to it at all. Huh. But people don't believe that. People thought, I've actually been told that I did a hatchet job on the second Bush by giving him a low IQ score. And I didn't even give him a low IQ score. He was above average. Uh. You know, it was about 125. That's not a low IQ score. But uh, it was 10 points below Clinton. So it's a hatchet job. Now, Trump, another reason why I think he's difficult to, to uh, test, besides the fact he hides all the relevant data that you might want to use, like his grades and, and uh, how he actually got into to Penn, is that um, he has other things that kind of interfere with estimating intelligence. And um, I'll go ahead and say it, his narcissism, you know, has been pretty well documented. It is sort of like what happened to the second Bush. He was actually brighter than he was given credit for, but because he was so closed-minded, 
he ended up so sounding less intelligent. He didn't want to process a lot of information. He just want, he, he said, I'm a decider. You know, I don't know they call it so I'm a decider. I don't need any data. <laughs> and, and Trump is very similar. I I think that's a really good point that we 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 could probably just leave that there because uh, his as with anyone with profound narcissism it can cloud and distort all sorts of other traits and characteristics so we'll leave that there Um, I want to end this interview with with a topic that I think is really interesting um, and I've followed with your research on this topic Um, and that's the ten year rule. Um, uh, for greatness or for expertise, world world class expertise, as as the late, uh, you you know that that he passed away, uh, Anders Ericsson, right? Um, yeah. Recently, um, uh, he was a uh, I think you and know he's uh, young too. You know, he, and I, he and I are about the same age. Oh wow! Yeah. So I consider him young. He was sixty nine. Yeah. Sixty nine. Yeah. That is well. That is yeah. young. That is young. It was yeah. really tragic. Um, I considered him a friend. You know, I considered. I think he's a, he was a terrific. Um, scientist, but I, I I think that this research you did, kind of reanalyzing it and and um, and arguing there's different rates um, of 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 you know there's variability there and in, in how long it takes people. And you know that's been yeah. followed up by people who've done much better jobs on, on it than than I have. But um, the basic idea is that when he publishes original data, uh, like showing how many hours of practice pianists, you know compiled for various categories, you know, like novices versus virtuosi and that kind of thing. Um, he didn't provide the range. Yeah. And the range is actually huge. And not only that, but that variation doesn't necessarily, it depends on the field, but that variation doesn't necessarily correlate the way you'd expect it. To. Yeah. So that, for example, um, what I found for classical composers is that there's a huge range, and those who have the narrower range, who took less time to master the field, end up being the greater composers. And that's super and that interesting. Seem to be the, that seems to be the opposite of what you expect. You think the more expertise yeah. you acquire, the, the, the more the greater your genius. Uh, and in fact, when you think about it, that seems to support a talent interpretation. That's what, yeah. There's some people who just take less time to become masters of the material. And then because they're talented, they can do more, what I call more bang for the buck. They could do more with it. Yeah. So the talent means they get better faster and they get more bang for the buck. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people who have done research on this in other domains. I focused on composers, but people look at other domains, and it turns out the variation doesn't explain very much variance in a lot of fields. Um, and the fields that explains the most variance in are fields that kind of make sense, like sports, where practice, practice, practice is extremely important. Uh, those people who, you know, when I, I, I watch basketball, and when I see people who miss more than 50% of their free throws, I go, you are not practicing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, now, there's going to be variation due to talent. I have no doubt about that. Yeah. 
But I think any professional basketball player should hit more than 50% of their free throws. Yeah. I mean, people hit more, people hit more than 50% of their three pointers. Yeah. 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 (laughs) It's such a good point. Yeah. It's such a good, well, this finding was so interesting um, that you just, that you mentioned, and it does suggest that talent isn't irrelevant. And at, 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 uh, you know, at, uh, in in one sense, or but another sense, it could we could say the talent is even more important than we give it credit for in those in those earlier studies. Did you ever talk to Erickson about it? Did you ever did you ever talk oh, to no, him? No, I did. I did more than talk with Erickson. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you know that he and I had huh. a, a public debate. Oh, at Claremont. Wow. Is it yeah. is it online? Is it online? Um, I don't know if they were put. This is this is a time when. It wasn't automatic that they put things online. Wow. It was it was sponsored by the student government at Claremont, and um, they it was quite a thing. They put it in their major, you know, auditorium. I don't remember what it was, and it was basically him versus me. Wow! And um, they took us out to dinner before it was the evening address, and um, he he and I got into it. Uh, I agree with you. He said he's a nice guy, but he has taken a very, very strong position on talent. Okay. Yeah. And one of the things that I find very surprising is in order to, to make his argument against talent, he often has to take arguments, make arguments that are just untenable. Like he and I at dinner had an argument about whether individual differences are real. He said, in, he says all individual differences that aren't physical differences like height um, are error, uh, measurement error. You can't, and I say, there are, you've got, I gotta be kidding, you've got to admit there's individual differences in intelligence and individual difference in personality. He wouldn't, he wouldn't admit it. And of course, the reason why is that the second you admit those individual differences, then you go to the genetic uh, they were geneticist research on identical twins rep- uh, reared apart and see what the heritability coefficients are for those individual differences. And, yeah. you know, like for most personality traits, it's around 50%. For intelligence, it's more than 50%. As you age, it gets it gets higher. Yeah, it gets yeah. bigger. It's, it can get up to uh, 0.8. 0.8, yeah. 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 So... Um, he and I really got on it, got, got at it, and um, it was, um, I mean, fortunately, it was moderated. So um, when either one of us got too far, we got cut off. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. It's That's sort good. Of like the second debate between Trump and Biden. <laughs> you know, they forced the microphone. <laughs> What uh, I would have give, given, what I would have would have given to have seen that, to have been there, or maybe I'm going to look to see if it's on YouTube because uh, yeah, you never know. I, I, I'll check too. I can't remember the date. It was in um, the early part of this uh, millennium, like 2003 or four or something like that. Um, I actually have it listed. I have a list of all my presentations. And I have it listed there. And you just search to uh, Claremont, and um, and see, and then see if it shows up on uh, YouTube or whatever. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm trying to look for it. 
Well, I have I have deep respect for for both of you, obviously, and um, and and yeah, just to to zoom in on you here, and uh, I'll kind of I'll end our episode today. Um, thank you so so much for being a real true legend and in the field, and I think I I think you're a genius of of the science of genius, if I may. Say, oh, you. Give you, know, you that I designation. One person say yeah. that about me, and says I'm the first one since Gotham. Yeah, yeah. Um, in a lot well, of ways, you're true or not. Well, in fact, uh, you know, yeah. I have a student who has a counter to that. I had a student who took my genius criteria leadership class, and and she says I'm going to write my term paper on how anybody who studies genius can't possibly be a genius. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. Um, but I think you know. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's interesting with Galton. I I think you're you're more of a genius than Galton because you um were you're more open minded. I think you bring in more perspectives to the table. You're, I think you're even more nuanced in your um consideration of the nature nurture um uh, interactions and um and all the socio cultural factors like you know that you've studied and and introduced into your models. Um, I I would make I, I I could write a paper on why I think you're more of a genius than Galton. <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> <Do it. laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know if it get published, but um, yeah, okay. I could write it. I could write. But um, thank you so much, Dean, for chatting with me today and and for being such an inspiration um, uh, to all of us scholars in the field. Oh, great! Well, oh, I really I really appreciate it. Scott. It was really a fun thing to do. I'm glad we we're finally able to do it. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, if you'd prefer a completely ad-free experience, you can join us at patreon.com slash psychpodcast. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.